this morning still is because Psalm 150 needs to be heard as well as read. It's one of those interactive pieces of Scripture. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments. And the flutes. Praise him with the loud cymbals. That works. And praise him with the clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. All right. Thank you very much. I think you'll agree that psalm almost requires the musical instruments to be there. In fact, the word psalm itself means a poem set to musical accompaniment. That's what the psalms were used for in ancient Israel. Notice the very first verse. The first word is praise. And if you were to count them up, praise is used 13 times in six verses. So what do you think the theme of this psalm is? It's praise. It's the response that we have toward God. In fact, the very first phrase and the last one, praise the Lord, is the Hebrew word hallelujah. And um, the word hallelujah has sort of made its way into our language as an expression Uh, Even unbelievers will say hallelujah if they like something. They go, well, hallelujah. And it actually means praise to you, the Lord. I used to have a friend in California. um, Well, he was an acquaintance at least. Uh, He would say in a preacher voice wherever he went, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And one time we walked into a restaurant, a few of us, and he kind of shouted it at the top of his lungs, which just drew attention to the fact that we were there. And he said really loudly, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And everybody looked at us like we were goofballs. We weren't. He was the only one that was. (laughs) Now, I heard of a Scottish minister who was unusually reserved. And there was somebody in his congregation, a gal by the name of Betty, who was excited. In fact, she verbalized her excitement. He would make a point in his message and she would say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And that was just her way of expressing love and affection, adoration for the truth that she heard. Well, it bugged this guy. In fact, on New Year's, he went to see Betty and said, look, I'll tell you what, if you promise this next year 
to refrain from saying praise the Lord and hallelujah when I'm giving a message. I know that you need and you want those two new wool blankets you've had your eye on. I'll buy them for you. Well, she was poor and she thought, well, it's a good deal. I need them. So I'll try, she promised. Week after week, she didn't say anything. It was hard, but she refrained. But one Sunday, the minister was sick. He had laryngitis. Somebody came to fill in for him. And this guy had great zeal and expression in his message. He was speaking about the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, the blessings that follow. And uh, as he was talking about it, she got more and more excited. And the vision of blankets began to fade from her mind. And finally, she could contain it no longer. And she stood up and she said, blankets or no blankets, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I've also found that the word hallelujah seems to be universal. You could go to almost any country in any language, and it's become a universal word. Um, I was in Mexico City a couple days ago, flew in yesterday afternoon. As we were passing out gifts in different distribution sites, and there were other Christians there, and they gave messages in Spanish, and they had skits for the kids. I didn't understand all the words, but from time to time... A few people in the crowd would say, Hallelujah! And I thought, I understand that word. It's the same in Spanish as in English as in almost every other language. Praise is the verbal response to God. It's not the only response, but it is a verbal response to say, I praise the Lord. The word praise, by the way, means literally value, price. So when we say praise the Lord, we're saying you're priceless. We're saying I value you, Lord. You are awesome. You know, I found that everybody worships something. I know that there are people who say, no, I'm an atheist. I don't think so. I'm of the opinion that absolutely everybody has some God that they worship. Some people worship themselves. Some people worship their job. They spend countless hours at the altar of their occupation, making their way up the corporate ladder, wanting to be somebody special, somebody noticed. Other people worship pleasure. They go from one chemical high to another chemical high, from one bed to another bed, anything to fulfill their senses. And it's pretty easy to tell what a person worships and praises just by looking at the lifestyle. Jesus said, wherever a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Find what that person treasures above all else. You'll find his heart bowing before that treasure. That's the person's God. Also, though it is easy and rather convenient to say, well, of course I worship God. Do you worship God with leftovers? Or do you worship him with everything? The substance, the core. It's easy to give God the leftovers. Well, listen, God, I'm busy, you know. I I have a life. I'll, I'll be around. I know you're always there. I told you about the guy that had two cows. And he said that he would give one to God and he would keep the other. Problem is, he never delineated as to which one he would give to God. Until one evening, somebody called him to the barn saying, one of the cows is sick and He went and rushed over to the barn, came back to the house a couple hours with a sullen face and said, Honey, I've got bad news. God's cow just died. (laughs) He waited till the one died to distinguish that was God's. I'll keep the best. Give God the leftovers. Well, Psalm 150 
not only talks about praise, but answers several questions, really, about the nature, the essence, the response of praise that we're to have. First of all, who is to be praised? I'm going to emphasize this as we go through it. Praise the Lord, singular. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then capping it off, praise the Lord. Do you get the idea that God wants worship exclusively without competition? In fact, the Bible even says that God is a jealous God. I don't know why for the life of me people try to explain that away. We feel like we better explain that scripture. God is a jealous God. It's not too good to be jealous. It's wonderful when you love somebody to have a jealous love. I want exclusive love. Some woman might say, well, I'm proud to say my husband is not a jealous husband. Well, I pity you. Because if somebody's trying to pick up on you, I hope he would step in and jealously guard the love that is to be exclusive. You'd never walk up, would you, men, to another fellow and say, well, how's our wife doing? Uh, Excuse me. She has one husband. The Bible says we're the bride of Christ. We are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, redeemed for him, created for him, and we're to have a singular love and devotion for him. Our worship, then, can't be to anyone else but him. Even John on the island of Patmos, remember the visions he got of the future? The angel gave him those visions. And John naturally bowed before that angel because of the magnificence of the visions and started worshiping the angel. And the angel didn't say, yeah, bring it on. The angel said, see that you don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. Worship God. God doesn't want angels to be worshipped. God doesn't want saints to be worshipped. God doesn't want Mary to be worshipped. God doesn't want pastors to be worshipped, systems, denominations, movements to be worshipped. God is the only one exclusively who is to be praised. What is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, he said. Besides me, you shall have no other. That's pretty narrow. So evaluate yourself. How about it this morning? Are you worshiping, praising God exclusively? You say, well, how can I really tell that? By answering, and I would say inwardly, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, these two questions. First is a question about your thoughts. Where do your thoughts go in quiet moments? After the din has died down, it's late in the day, it's in the evening, your head's on the pillow, what do you think of? You know, whatever is your master passion in life will master your thought life. Proverbs 23 tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Sort of like a compass. Take a compass, move it in any direction you want, but put it on level ground and it will always point to the north. Your mind is like that. It can focus on a variety of subjects throughout the day, a variety of relationships, a variety of projects. But where do your thoughts point when it quiets down? To your job, to your girlfriend, to your position, to some accomplishment, to the Lord God? 
Secondly, is a question regarding your motives. Who are you trying to impress? Now, if you're an English teacher, forgive me. Whom are you trying to impress? With all of your accomplishments, with all of your education, and some people will say, well, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I do it for me. Ah, we found your God. And yet some will impress others. Some are so starved for affection, so starved for encouragement, that they'll do anything to please people. And they're worshiping the people. They want the praise of men. The Apostle Paul reminds us, being entrusted with the gospel, he said in 1 Thessalonians, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God who tests the hearts. So all of us need a motivation for what we do because there's going to be people who like or don't like what we do and we have thoughts that will accept or reject what we are doing. We need then a solid motivation to please God. Example, years ago, a great movement started, the Moravian movement. It was a movement of churches solely designed to raise up missionaries to send all over the world. It was founded by... Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Not that I expect you to remember that, but Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf uh, was an aristocratic uh, unbeliever in Europe, and he walked through a gallery one day and he saw a painting of Jesus Christ, arms spread out on the cross, bleeding. And it struck him, but what struck him even more than the picture was a little plaque written on the bottom that said, This is what I have done for thee, what wilt thou do for me? It stopped him dead in his tracks. He gave his life to the Savior, and he decided, I am now motivated to serve, to please, and to render praise to him forever. That's what started the Moravian movement. So who is to be praised? God, God alone. Uh, Secondly, where should praise take place? Notice, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise God in the sanctuary. That is, on earth. The sanctuary is is the temple. If you went to Jerusalem, if you were there on a feast day, if you walked through the court of the Gentiles, if you saw the priests and the people gathered, you would expect praise to be heard. You'd expect the Levitical choir to sing songs to God. You would expect the praises of uh, the priests to be sounded, scripture to be read. You'd expect worship of God in the temple. All right, I figure it this way. When you come to church, you should expect praise of God. You should expect God's people to be engaged in focusing their thoughts, their attention, their songs upon Him. Yet, there is a trend that sort of worries me, frankly. It's very popular in the Church of Jesus Christ in many places, especially in this country. It's sort of known as the seeker-friendly movement. Let's not sing worship songs in church. Let's sing folk songs. After all, you know, um, uh, praising God can be a turnoff to people. Um, let's not have the old hymns about the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, that, that's kind of gross. Let's remove those and we'll just sing folk songs that make people feel good. You see, the idea is we don't want to feed the sheep but entertain the goats. It's always dangerous. Always dangerous. Even an an unbeliever expects, when he comes to church, to hear worship. Expects God to be praised. So God is to be praised in his sanctuary. There's also, notice, a corollary to that phrase. 
Praise him in the mighty firmament or in the expanse of heaven. Here's the idea. God is praised in heaven. Let God be praised on earth as well as he is in heaven. Now, wouldn't you agree that in terms of size of crowd and in terms of location, the greatest worship service ever is going to be in heaven? All of the saints past, all of the saints present, yet future, the Lord knows what that is, all together in one place with all of the angels, and and you're going to be singing praises. So you ought to get ready now. It says in Revelation 5, as we peek into eternity, Then I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, all that is in them, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. For the rest of your eternal life, you'll be worshiping, praising God. As soon as you pass through the veil of death, you're going to be very much alive. There was a mom trying to comfort her young daughter on the death of the family cat. You know, you're a kid, the cat dies, your world falls apart. So the mom spiritualized the whole event. Oh, honey, death is inevitable, and God calls his creatures back to himself. And the little girl with great insight said, Mommy, what on earth would God ever want with a dead cat? Well, when there's a dead human who has known God in life, immediately at death, he's more alive. She's more alive in the presence of God, singing, worshiping, in direct correspondent fellowship with the Father. You're going to be singing praises for all of eternity. Thus, this verse is seen like this. God is already praised in heaven. You're going to praise him throughout eternity in heaven. Why not practice now on earth as it is in heaven? Like the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And since that's going to be your eternal occupation, why not practice now? Why not get tuned up for it now? Why wait? Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. I was reading a little story by Jim Hewitt who visited a church in Connecticut. It was a more formal church. They had the Eucharistic liturgy in the middle of the service. Everybody was on their knees reciting prayers. Then they sung, Alleluia. There was one woman with her hand raised, hands, plural, raised to the heavens. What struck James Hewitt was that the woman's hands were twisted and curled. She had arthritis. It was obviously painful for her. She couldn't even stretch out all the way. Next to her, a pair of crutches. He looked at her and thought, Dear God, what makes these Christians in this condition sing hallelujah? Answer? People who want praise to happen now like it will in heaven. People who now want to please God on earth. It's the hope that somehow my life now could be pleasing to God as it will be in heaven. So God is to be praised on earth. God is to be praised and is praised in heaven. Third, and we come now to the next verse, verse 2, what should praise include? Well, it says, praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. In other words, we're to praise God for at least two things. Number one, what he does, his mighty acts. Number two, for who he is, according to his excellent greatness. When you were driving here this morning on the icy streets, 
and you looked around at the snow, did you praise God for his mighty acts? I love the snow. I flew in yesterday from Mexico City, flew into the snowstorm, and I was thinking as I was flying in of, of the whole hydrological cycle. And I thought, praise God. And I thought of El Nino that's bringing all this weather. It's bringing extra snow for snowboarding. <laughs> Bigger waves for surfing. And I thought, praise the Lord for his mighty acts. You know, I'm of the opinion that the believer in Jesus Christ can and should be able to praise God more than any devoted environmentalist for what he sees around. This is what God did. He's my dad, you know. These mighty acts, I know the architect who did this. Think of your human body. The psalmist already declared we're fearfully, wonderfully made. You have 30 trillion cells in your body, give or take a few. And inside each cell is a nucleus. Inside the nucleus, it's like a mini Tokyo. It's a, a city where millions of things are happening. Messages are stored, sent, changes are taking place. In the nucleus of each cell, you have that genetic material called the DNA, 23 pairs of chromosomes. And it's sort of like springs scrunched together on a tape, densely coated information on a scrunched spring of tape in the nucleus of each cell. That densely recorded information dictates how every cell is to function, what you'll look like, what proportions you'll take from moment of conception till death. If you wanted to convert that coded information into written material for one cell, you'd need 4,000 books to do it. Take one cell, convert the information, you would fill this platform from the floor to the ceiling with 4,000 volumes. How big of a room would you need if you wanted to convert all 30 trillion cells? Well, you could fill the Grand Canyon up. Full of books. Now the Grand Canyon's three to twenty miles wide, a mile deep, two hundred miles long. You could fill up the Grand Canyon, overflowing forty times, by converting the densely coded information of the DNA into written material. All of that's in your body, fearfully, wonderfully made. Now, the greatest of God's acts, the mightiest of His acts, isn't creation. Not the human body. The mightiest of God's acts is redemption. The Bible centers around the fact that 2,000 years ago, God sent his son not to stay as a little baby in a manger so people could paint that on their storefronts every year, but that baby grew up to die on a cross to pay for our sins. He grew up to be an adult savior. And that's the mightiest act of God. In fact, that will be the subject of praise for all of eternity is that one act. Revelation 5 tells us that we will sing... For you were slain to the Lamb. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. So, we have a lot to be praising God for. Mighty acts. Now, you might retort at this point, Well, not everything that happens to me is praiseworthy in my life. I have pain, you know. I have things that happen to me, you know, that, that aren't all that good. you telling me that I should praise God? In every circumstance? Yep. Paul said, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, notice I didn't say praise God for everything. I don't believe that's necessarily scriptural. 
Somebody gets blown in the head with a 45, I don't stop and say, oh, praise God for that. I'd be an idiot. But in everything, not for everything, in everything, I can still praise and trust a God bigger than the circumstance who weaves all things together for the good for those who love God. There still is God in sovereign control, yes, allowing the free will of man up to an extent, but I can, in everything, give thanks. I was reading two weeks ago about an interesting fruit that is grown in certain parts of Africa called the taste berry. Never heard of it before. A little berry called the taste berry that actually changes your taste for a few hours. It's sweet, it's pleasant tasting, and you eat it. And it is said that even if you taste, if you eat sour fruit, hours after you've had the taste berry, it tastes sweet. Wouldn't that be cool? Give that to your kids before they eat supper. Everything tastes great to them. (laughs) Did you know that praise is the taste berry of the Christian life? Anything that happens to you, anything that God allows to come in your life, for you in the midst of that to render praise to God for His mighty acts, His sovereign control, lightens the load, changes the outlook. Not only that, it says we're to praise God according to His excellent greatness. We're to praise God for who He is, not just what He does. Folks, if you have no reason at all outwardly to praise God this morning, you have one good reason, should end all the arguments, because God is God. Because God is still on the throne and because God Himself, according to simply His nature and character, is worthy. The word praise means value or price. God's worthy of my praise. You see, we should never worship for what we can get out of it. Well, I'm going to go to church. I really need to get lifted up. We, we do get lifted up. Don't get me wrong, but that's not the motivation. We praise God because He's God. I don't feel like it. He's still God. I've had bad things happen to me. He's still God. A.W. Tozer wrote, I believe it, though I'm convicted by it. Whoever seeks God as a means toward a desired end will never find God, for God will not be used. Finally, how should praise be expressed? Well, verse 3, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, with the lute, with the harp, with the timbrel, the dance, the stringed instruments, the flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So we're to praise God with instruments that man has made. Seven instruments are mentioned here. One dance. I found that praise is almost always, almost invariably linked with music in the Bible, either vocally or instrumentally. You weigh all the scriptures of the Old and New Testament together, you come up with the fact that praise, be it a voluntary expression from my own heart or a concerted corporate effort in the temple with the Levitical choir, there's music involved in praise that we sing. Martin Luther wrote these words, Next to theology, I give music the highest place and honor. Music is the art of the prophets. It is the only art that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents that God has given to us. See, praise music is meant to move us emotionally. And it does. Right kind of song lifts us up. Other kind of song focuses our meditation upon God. It's meant to move us spiritually. It's meant to teach us 
spiritually as well. We get instructed. I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of times I've forgotten certain truths and the song sung reminds me of that attribute of God and it brings out that release. Oh, God, I trust you in this area. I was admonished, taught by a song. You know that's scriptural? Music, praise music is to teach people. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. It teaches people about Jesus. It uh, instructs, it admonishes, it encourages. And especially some of the old hymns are packed with theology to train people in the ways of God as you sing them. Um, Handel's Messiah, we love to sing, at least some of you do every year. You know the Hallelujah Chorus? It was written by George Friedrich Handel. And when he wrote it, he said these words, I would be sorry if I only succeeded in entertaining people. I want to make them better. Now, music is a powerful influence in any society, from a folk song to an anthem to advertisement. You want to sell a Coke? Come up with a jingle. You want to sell a Chevy, even electricity? The right song will do it. It'll play through our minds and we'll think about its message. It's the expression of every society. One study by the Teenage Research Group Unlimited said that kids spend more hours listening to music than any other leisure activity. It's the very fiber of life. We work to it, we worship to it, we move, we sway, we jive. It moves us. I heard about a missionary in Nigeria who was going to build a mission station using local indigenous help. The time came. They were all gathered together on the day. Time to start. Nobody worked. An hour went by. Two hours went by. The missionary from the West went to the supervisor and said, "Uh, excuse me, it's been a couple hours. Nobody's working. The supervisor said, well, I don't know what went wrong, but for some reason the musician is delayed. He said, the what? Yeah, the musician is delayed. You see, we work to the chants of the songs and the beat of the log. No different really than us. Music influences us. And minstrels of music who lead us in worship get us in moods many times with major and minor chords. It's just a fact of life. You know, I, I think you've got to be practically spiritually dead when a worship band cranks up the tunes and God's worship is going on to sit and just observe without engaging. Hello, where's God? What's he been doing in your life? Now, what kind of music was it? Well, if you look just at Psalm 150, the kind of instruments, it seems that the music was loud and very rhythmic. There's percussion and stringed instruments that are mentioned. First of all, the trumpet. This is the shofar in Hebrew, the ram's horn. It was blown at festivals. It's not really melodic. You wouldn't use it in a band. It just sort of makes this honking noise. The shofar had one purpose, to make noise. It was blown. It got people's attention. It warned them of a battle. It summoned them to the temple. It just made noise, a very distinct sound. Then also it is mentioned here the lute and the harp. Both of them are strummed or plucked. One is a very rich person's harp. One is a very common harp. Then the timbrel, that's the tambourine. 
symbol in the scripture of gladness. After the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, Miriam got out the tambourine, did a little jig and worshiped God. Then the dance is mentioned. Exodus 15, after the Red Sea deliverance, they danced. They were excited. Judges 21, they had a yearly feast at Shiloh where everybody danced outside the children of Israel. David, as he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, danced before the Lord, even in the New Testament, the prodigal son, as he returns to his father, celebrated by dancing and singing. It wasn't really something done in the synagogue every week or in the temple every week as much as outside in the fields. It had the right environment, the right context, the national feasts of Israel. Now, I think it's just important to think about this whole idea of music uh, that is loud and rhythmic and accompanied with joy, different kinds of instruments, making of noise. Because there is controversy over music. You know, leave it to the devil to cause the church to divide over the stupidest issue, including what kind of music God likes. And there are some who flatly will say, God don't like them guitars and drums. That's demon music. He only likes organs and hymns, and it has to be 4-4 beat or heaven won't hear it. What is the complaint? Well, the complaint is simply this. Music moves people. Yeah, I think that would be the idea. It is to move people. I think music is like a knife. Now, you could say this. Knives are evil. We had to ban all knives. Why? Well, bad people cut other people with them. Yeah, and moms also cut fruits and vegetables to feed their family. I I guess it depends who uses the knife and how it's used. You can't say it's evil. It could be good. It could free somebody who's bound by ropes. Music, well, that music is evil. Drums, guitars. Well, I guess it depends once again if God uses it or the devil uses it. And you know, throughout history, many have sensed the need from time to time to change Expressions of praise to fit the generation involved. Martin Luther wrote these words. Quote, how has it happened that in the secular field there are so many fine poems and so many beautiful songs, while in the religious field we have such rotten, lifeless stuff? Tell us how you really feel, Martin. He said, we must read, sing, preach, write, compose verse, And whenever helpful and beneficial, I would let all the bells peal, all the organs thunder, and everything sound that could sound. Well, in 1524, Martin Luther went as far as to take popular bar songs, drinking songs. He took the melodies, sung in the bars, brought them into the church, and just put Christian lyrics to them. Controversial indeed at that time. Such songs as Away in a Manger. A mighty fortress is our God. Bar songs before Christian words were attached to them. Then in 1690, a young boy leaving church turned to his father and says, Dad, this music is boring. And his dad, shame on you, rebuked him. You think you can do any better? You write some praise songs. So young Isaac Watts did. We sang one of them this morning. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Another one, when I survey the wondrous cross. Then, moving into more recent history, William Booth wanted to reach street people, 
Not church people, street people with the gospel. He said, the organ isn't going to cut it. I want to use drums, trumpets. And he founded what we call the Salvation Army. And at the level of people on the street, he sang songs and brought them to faith in Christ. And the church called it devil music. And then there's D.L. Muti and his revivals in Chicago and on the East Coast and eventually worldwide into Glasgow, Scotland. His worship leader was Ira Sankey. And when he gave his crusades in Glasgow, Scotland, the Scottish people called it steam kettle music, not fit to be sung at a crusade. What Ira Sankey did is took contemporary songs of his day. The waltz was contemporary in those days. And he took the waltz, the contemporary songs, and put Christian lyrics to them. What would people say if we did that? What if we took songs of the Rolling Stones and Madonna and Fiona Apple and others and decided we're going to put Christian lyrics to them and sing them? Be controversial as it was in Moody's day, as it was in Isaac Watts' day, as it was in the days of Martin Luther and others. Nine times in the Bible, and no less, we're encouraged to sing a new song to the Lord. Sing a new song. Why? I I think for this reason. Because God is still working. I love the old hymns. We try to incorporate them from time to time. But if we only sing the old stuff written four, five hundred, six hundred, eight hundred years ago, what, what we are saying is this. Oh, God worked then. He doesn't do it anymore. Oh, we'll always look to the past, remember the past, the good old days when God was alive. He's not anymore. Let me encourage you, fresh young musicians. Go for it. Write new expressions of praise. Well, all I know is metal guitar. Go for it. We'll find a place for you. All I know is drums and tambourine. Listen, let's not live in the past. Let's bring in the past, but let's sing new songs as well and not be afraid. Finally, We are to praise God not only with the instruments God has given, the instruments man has made, but it says in the last verse, verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What could be clearer? Whether you play an instrument or not, whether you sing well or not, do you breathe? If you stick a mirror under your nose and if vapor appears, it's a sign that you're alive, you're breathing, you have breath then you are to praise God as well as those with instruments. Let everything that has breath... What a fitting way to end this book. The Psalms, the songs of Israel, fresh and new written expressions of King David, Moses, and many, many others. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. There was, in last century, a, a famous stone cathedral in Europe that had an organ that was well-renowned throughout the land. One Saturday afternoon when the custodian of the church was getting the choir loft and dusting off the organ, getting it ready, he heard footsteps coming up the stairs to the choir loft. He thought, who, who could be in the church? Nobody's here but me. There was a stranger in sort of tattered garments. He said, I have come from afar. I've heard about the organ. Would you open up the console? Let me look at it. The custodian resists and he said, well, uh, I don't think so. You see, uh, we just don't do that. And we're going to have choir practice later. And he said, ah, listen, I've traveled so far. Would you just open it? Let me just look at it. It won't hurt anything. So custodian opened up the console. The visitor sighed. Wow, beautiful. 
thoughts, as beautiful as I, as I heard it told. Would you mind if I just sat on the bench? Absolutely not. The bench is reserved for the organist. I, he'd have my job if I did that. Oh, come on. It won't hurt anything. I'm just going to sit there. So he sits on the bench and looks it over. And by this time, the custodian, the sexton, wasn't too surprised when the visitor said, could I just play a few notes? Absolutely not. This organ is reserved for the organist, sanctioned by the church. I won't hurt anybody. Just a few notes. So he thought, well, go ahead. The visitor knew what he was doing, pulled out the stops, and played the most beautiful song. In fact, the custodian thought to himself, I have never heard this organ sound that good. The visitor thanked him and was on his way. As he was leaving, the custodian said, wait a minute, who are you? The man turned around and said, the name is Mendelssohn. Yes, it was Felix Mendelssohn, the great 19th century organist and composer. And as he was walking out of that cathedral, the custodian thought to himself, I almost kept the master from playing his music in my cathedral. The book of Psalms, the studies that we have gone through in the last 24 studies, teach us, if they teach us anything, you only live once. Your life will soon pass away. And you can have a personal relationship with the master of the universe. Don't make a mistake of failing to let him play his music through you. Failing to let your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth be his instruments to convey his message of praise to him and the gospel to the world. That's why you were created. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Father, as the master of the universe, as the one who is pleased with all praise that comes from a heart that is upright in any form of instrumentation, loud, soft, major, minor chord. You want everything made, everything on earth, as much as possible voluntarily to praise you now. What an indication that is of the greater praise we'll experience in your kingdom. I pray, Father, that with all of the differences among us, the creative temperaments, uh, the, the different styles and likes and dislikes, that with all of it, it would be rendered as praise and worship to lead others to Christ, to instruct others in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.